that rascal Capocchio, we're not done with him yet, but we are moving on to the 30th canto of Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking Matante, a podcast in which you probably know we are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we are clear down in the 30th canto. Can you believe we got here? Oh, it took us only 182 episodes of this podcast, but we got to the 30th canto of Inferno, 30 of 34. We are in the Back in stretch, we are in the tenth of the Matabolgia, the evil pouches of fraud. We are way down at the end of fraud, almost to the very end of the eighth circle, except it's a crowded bit down here at the end of the eighth circle, and we have an entire canto yet to go of figures. We've met a couple of alchemists, and now we're going to meet more, except first, we are going to come to the grandest opening of any canto of Inferno. Let's do it. We're at lines 1 through 33 of Canto 30. You can find this translation on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go to the same place. You can read along and you can even drop a comment if you want. Here's the passage. In that time of year when Juno's cruel fury at Simile was spent on the Theban blood, as she did over and over, Athamas became so totally insane that when he saw his wife walk around with their two children in her hands, he yelled, Let's spread out the nets so I can ensnare the lioness and her cubs at the crossroads. Then he stretched out his own unsparing claws, grabbed the one called Laercus, spun him around, and smashed him against a rock, at which his wife drowned herself with her other cargo. And as soon as fortune ran the damn the torpedoes heights of Troy into the ground so that the king and his kingdom were broken to bits, after sorrowing Hecuba in agony and a prisoner watched Polyxana die and found Polydorus near the banks of the sea, she roamed about in torment, went completely mad and barked like a dog because all that sorrow had rattled her mind. Even so, neither the crazed Thebans nor the Trojans had ever managed to seem so barbaric as to wound a beast, much less human parts, as the two shades I saw who were pale and naked. They bit as they ran in the manner of pigs when the gate of the sty is left open. One of them got up to Capocchio and buried his tusks into the nape of his neck, then dragged him along so that his belly scraped against the hard floor of the ditch. And the guy from Arezzo, who was left there shivering in fear, said to me, That ghoul is Gianni Skiki. He goes about all rabid to rough up others in this way. Well, there is a crazy opening to a canto. Probably the most elaborate opening of any canto in Inferno. We're going to have to 
unpack this thing, the Theban and the Trojan imagery. We're going to have to explain why the poet steps out at the end of these giant examples from Thebes and Troy to explain it to us. And then we finally get a node of the plot as Capocchio is dragged off and the other alchemist identifies one of the rabid souls. Let's get started. Up first, I should say, as you now well know, this is the last canto of fraud. We have come to the very end of fraud, canto 30 of Inferno, and it opens with one of the most, as we've already said, challenging and elaborate sets of illusions. They aren't truly similes. They're illusions which become similes as the passage goes forward. Illusions that morph into similes as they become representative of the figures here. Just think about that. We're in the pit of the falsifiers and we're watching classical illusions. We'll talk about to whom and what in a minute, but classical illusions, two of them, one to Thebes, one to Troy, we're watching those happen, then we're watching them twist into similes for the characters in the plot, and then we descend to the plot all in the pit of falsification. If that's not enough meta-literary Fandango for you. I don't know what is. This is so elaborate and complex. Let's take each of these examples one at a time, first starting with Thebes. The canto opens in that time of year when Juno's cruel fury at Semele. Now, I just want to stop right there at Semele, or as her name would be in classical Greek, Semele, at this figure, because this is how it opens, although the story that gets told has nothing to do with this figure, Semele, or Semele, as we might now say in modern English. Who is this? This is the daughter of Cadmus. Who is Cadmus? He's the founder of Thebes. This Semele is one of his children, and she slept with Jupiter. From her affair with the god Jupiter was born Bacchus. But as always happens in these stories, Juno, Jupiter's wife, got furious at his infidelities and, as always, took out her wrath on the human, not on Jupiter. So Juno tricked Semele into asking Jupiter to see him in his full glory. In fact, he did show himself to Semele. She was thus burned to a crisp by the lightning bolts that came out of him. And I'm going to say one more thing about her before we pass on to more about Thebes. She's going to appear again in comedy in Paradiso 21. So wait on the line. We're going to have the poor incinerated simile one more time, except in a completely different context. So that's how it starts. Juno's fury at Semele, which was spent on the Theban bloodline, that is all of the people who came from Cadmus, all of his many children, and the founding of Thebes, as she did over and over. And so now we hit the story about the fall of Thebes. 
Athamas. He is the king of Orchomenos, and he is married to someone, but also having an affair with another of Cadmus's daughters. This time, I know. I know becomes the nurse of Bacchus, and she is the consort of Athamas. What happens here is that Juno's wrath is spent not only on Semele, but also on Athamas. She causes him to go insane. He sees, now, Dante says his wife. It's not actually his wife. It's his consort. So he sees his consort walking around with their two children, Laercus and Melisertes in the classical Greek, Melikertes, but as we say in modern English, Melisertes. He sees her walking around with their two children. He's nuts, don't forget. He's been driven nuts by Juno. He says, let's spread out the nets so that I can snare the lioness and her cubs at the crossroads. Apparently, he sees them as animals, his consort and his two children. He sees them as a lioness and her cubs. But instead of a net, he himself becomes the lion. He stretches out his unsparing claws. Note this imagery, claws, grabs the one called Laercus, one of his two sons, spins him around and smashes him against a rock, thereby, of course, killing him. At which point, his wife, as Dante says, although, again, this is his consort, I know, at which his wife jumps off a cliff and drowns herself with, as the text says, her other cargo, or that is, with her other child. Now, that was really complicated. I'm going to talk to you about where this story comes from, but let me just read you those opening 12 lines now that you've heard the whole story and you can hear those opening 12 lines. Here they are. In that time of year when Juno's cruel fury at Semele was spent on the Theban blood, as she did over and over, Athamas became so totally insane that when he saw his wife walking around with their two children in her hands, he yelled, let's spread out the nets so I can ensnare the lioness and her cubs at the crossroads. Then he stretched out his own unsparing claws, grabbed the one called Laercus, spun him around, and smashed him against a rock at which his wife drowned herself with her other cargo. The opening 12 lines comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's from Book 4, lines 512 through 530. You can read it there. This is not from Statius and his saga of the fall of Thebes, but Thebes is certainly for Dante one of the two examples of ruined civilizations. Dante is picking this up pretty closely from Ovid and repeating all of this in a super condensed way. That story has been condensed down to those 12 lines, basically about a family going nuts, destroying their own children, about seeing people bestially or seeing them as beasts. All of that compressed into that opening 12 lines, which again is an assembly. It's actually a recitation of the story. So let's move on to Troy. 
the next nine lines do the same thing. This time, again, from Ovid's Metamorphoses, but from book 13, lines 405 through 575. If you want to go look these up, you'll know more about the way Dante is compressing it. Here's this story. As you know, Troy is, of course, brought low. And let me say that the story I'm telling you now is from Ovid's Metamorphoses, not the Homeric story. So Troy is brought low. They the damn the torpedoes heights of Troy. That's how I translated it. Something like the prideful Troy or the puffed up heights of Troy in the Florentine, but I gave it a very colorful English twist to it. Damn the torpedoes, heights of Troy. It's been run to the ground by fortune. So think about what we learned about fortune earlier in comedy from Virgil's sermon on fortune. This is this familiar notion of the turn of the wheel. And Troy was up and now it's down. It's been run down into the ground so that the king, that's Priam, the king of Troy and his kingdom were broken to bits after sorrowing Hecuba, that's the queen of Troy, Priam's wife. So Hecuba is taken prisoner by the Greeks when Troy falls. She is then carried away as prisoner with her daughter, Polyxena, or again, in the classical Greek, Poluxene. But Polyxene, she's taken away with her daughter. They end up in Thrace, and at the tomb of Achilles in Thrace, Achilles comes up, his shade comes up, and becomes super enamored with Polyxena and demands her sacrifice. She is then put to death in front of Hecuba. Remember, these are Trojans. Hecuba must now deal with her daughter's body that has been sacrificed to Achilles' love for her, the dead Achilles' love for her. She's got to wash the body and prepare it for burial. She, Hecuba, the queen of Troy, goes down to the water, and there she finds her son, Polydorus, drowned. He is drowned there by Polymnestor, the king of Thrace. He has been put to death by Polymnestor, the king of Thrace, and thrown into the river. He washes up. Hecuba finds him. She goes mad. She starts barking like a dog. That's the metamorphosis in Ovid. And she tears out Polymnestor's eyes. That story is here again, condensed into this passage which I'm going to read to you again so you hear it, condensed down into this passage, which is a recitation of a story but not a simile. Here it is. As soon as fortune ran the damn the torpedoes heights of Troy into the ground so that the king and his kingdom were broken to bits, after sorrowing Hecuba in agony and a prisoner watched Polyxena die and found Polydorus near the banks of the sea, she roamed about in torment, went completely mad and barked like a dog, because all that sorrow had rattled her mind. All right, two giant classical illusions. Let me just summarize it before we move on. 
These are, again, the two cities that Dante uses as examples of ruined civilizations. They are the warning markers for Florence and central Italy, Thebes and Troy. These are two stories about people ruined, mad, insane, crazy, whose whose children themselves become the subjects of violence in various ways. So the very units of the family are destroyed in an insane orgy of violence. They're also both connected by water. Hecuba finds her son on the banks of the river. Athamas's wife jumps off a cliff into the water and drowns herself with her other child. There's a way in which Dante is connecting these two stories very closely together. Just hold all that in your mind as the cities fall around them and then listen how the poet comes out of it. Even so, neither the crazed Thebans nor the Trojans, thereby reminding us what just came before us, had ever managed to seem so barbaric as to wound a beast much less human parts, as two shades I saw who were pale and naked. Again, we're referring back to those two examples. Wound a beast, that's going all the way back to Athamas, thinking that his consort is a lioness with her cubs and himself becoming bestial, stretching out his unsparing claws, as I translated it. That's the wound beast, much less human pieces, human parts. That's the reference to Hecuba tearing out Polymnestor's eyes after she discovers that he, the king of Thrace, has killed her youngest son. That tearing out of his eyes is not in the passage, the nine lines from Troy, but We believe, uh, almost all commentators believe, that that reference to human parts is referring to that bit of that story that you would know if you read Ovid. Man, this is smarty pants stuff. None of them was as crazy as these two shades, who I saw pale and naked. We're back to that naked problem. Remember this problem? Are the damned naked? And it leads us to the bigger question, is Virgil naked? Remember this whole question? We, We batted it back and forth endlessly way earlier, many, many episodes ago. These two were certainly naked, and I think it's supposed to point out their bestiality, the way they are completely debased. They bit as they ran in the manner of pigs when the gate of the sty is left open. This is the first time we get close to a simile. We don't get a full simile, we get a metaphor. But they, these two are so nuts, they're like rabid pigs. And if you leave the door open to the pin to the sty, then the pigs get out and they just go crazy. Think big old wild boars. Don't think modern, domestic, rather lethargic pigs. Think about the pigs that would be raised for food back in Dante's day and even in the classical age before him. We're talking things much closer to wild boars. These two are clearly rabid. 
look at all the animal imagery in this passage. There's the whole bit with Athamas thinking his consort and his children, or as the text says, his wife and his children, are lioness and clubs. Then there's a reference to his claws in it. Then think about Hecuba. She went mad and barked like a dog. Then these guys come running up pale and naked, and they're like pigs let out of a stall. And then when we get to the next and last bit of the passage, one of them apparently has tusks instead of teeth. Now, I think he probably has teeth, but since they've been compared to pigs, they've got tusks. So debased, so bestial. Two things you should notice here. One, Dante is clearly pointing out to you that madness is a kind of metamorphosis, that madness itself, insanity, is a way that humans change and not for the better. If you have ever lived with anybody who has mental issues, then you know that mental illness fundamentally alters the character of someone until they become almost unrecognizable, especially if it progresses. And here it clearly has. So madness is a kind of metamorphosis, which is pulling us back to the pit of the thieves and all those metamorphoses, except you realize that this is all much more sophisticated. Back there in the thieves, the references to Ovid and the metamorphoses were so ham-handed. They were so overt. It was such a poetic contest to see which poet could be smarter. And Dante even said, I can outdo Ovid. Now we seem to have come a long way from that. And the Ovidian passages are woven more intricately and elegantly into the text, we still have this notion of metamorphosis, which we're about to follow up on in the plot. But in this case, now there's a thematic intent, not just a poetic contest to see who can do it better, but a thematic intent. We'll get to that. Let's go through the plot before we get to that thematic intent. The passage ends, one of them got up to Capocchio. So here come these two pale and naked guys. One of them gets up to Capocchio, buries his tusks into the nape of Capocchio's neck and drags him along so that his belly scrapes against the hard floor of the ditch. This is really a disgusting and quite violent moment. This pit is unbelievable. It's funny, it's violent, it's desperate, it's, it, this this last pit of fraud, I mean, really, honestly, all the stops are being pulled out. There goes Porco Procchio being dragged along, his stomach ripped open against the hard floor of the ditch. And that leaves us with who we guess is Griffolino. Go back several episodes if you want to hear that whole problem. The guy from Arezzo who probably is Griffolino, but may not be Griffolino. He's standing there shivering in fear. Now, remember, they were both leaning against each other like pans, but now his support is gone. He's just wobbling there. He's got no more guy to lean against in this pit. He's shivering, and he identifies the guy who sank his tusks into Capocchio. That 
ghoul. It's a very specific word, a ghoul monster, that very horrible figure was Gianni Skiki. He goes about all rabid to rough up others in this way. Gianni Skiki is going to come up in a later passage, so I don't want to completely unpack him here. He's going to remain inside the canto, but let's just say he is a Florentine from the Cavalcanti family. Remember Cavalcante di Cavalcanti, who comes up in the tomb next to Ferranata, and he was a famed and known impersonator, someone who would take on the identity of others in order to pull a fast one on their relatives, their friends, their debtors, their lenders, one of those types. Not an impersonator like a comedian, somebody who does voices really well, but somebody who literally dresses up like other people in order to bilk their families or their friends, particularly out of money. And we'll find out the whole story of Gianni Skiki on down the line in this very canto. Or perhaps you know the opera, Gianni Schicchi and the way Puccini has taken this little bit from comedy and turned it into his famed one-act opera with that gorgeous aria inside of it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, do yourself a favor. Go out to Spotify or wherever you get your music and listen to a recording of Gianni Schicchi. It will pay off big time. It's a gorgeous opera in the bel canto style. Now, let's talk about the thematics going on here. Dante is onto something, and it's subtle, and it's under the surface, but it is here, and it is our moment, and it is almost his moment. Remember, Dante does not live during plague, during the Black Death. He dies before he hits Italy, but still nonetheless, malaria and other contagions are crazy in his day. And here's what he's on to. Nothing disrupts civilizations like contagion. I call your attention to the current pandemic. The threat underneath the pandemic is societal chaos. There has been no war ever able to make and remake and destroy and disrupt human civilizations like contagion. This last pit of fraud, which is all about treating other people as objects to get what you want, which is what fraud's been about all along, it's always been about the disruption of civilization, from baritry to simony to fortune-telling to hypocrisy, All of these pits of fraud have been about ways in which civilization itself is disrupted. Here, in the last pit, we hit the big ace trump out of the whole deck of cards, contagion. Underneath this concept of fraud is running the notion that entire civilizations can fall apart, and thus Thebes, and thus 
Troy. This is what it all comes down to. This is what the entire Eighth Circle has been building toward, to tell you that fraud has the ability to undo civilization. And in order to show you that at its final and grossest extent, Dante makes contagion the last of the pits of fraud because contagion is the biggest disruptor of human civilization ever. There's nothing more threatening to the social order. It can absolutely undo civilizations, and it has, over the course of human history. This passage so elegantly and beautifully and classically lays it out for you. If you understand that this is a medieval malarial hospital and you understand we're dealing with souls who are rabid, souls who have perhaps leprosy in a medieval context, scaly skin, a form of leprosy, as we've discussed, and other diseases which are ahead of us in this pit, all of which are terminal in a medieval context. If you understand that this is a medieval hospital of horrors, then you see here what Dante's laying out for you, that fraud, like contagion, can cause everyone to go mad and cause civilization itself to fall apart. Now listen, Dante knows that Thebes did not fall because of contagion and Troy did not fall because of contagion. But what I'm suggesting to you is he's drawing a parallel between these fallen civilizations and this medieval hospital of horrors also that we can see that fraud is as desperate a disruptor as contagion itself. There is a dangerous game being played here because all of this is being built in the pit of the falsifiers and all of this is a gigantic falsification as we watch the stories of these cities slowly morph into similes for the people in the pit and become parallel with the people in the pit wounds of a beast human parts linus and her cubs tearing out his eyes as we see these things slowly morph into similes for the various actors in this pit we're playing the game of poetic falsification what is a simile <laughs> It's a falsification at its very heart. Not a falsification as in it's false, but it is an attempt to turn lead into gold. It is an attempt to turn one thing into another, to jump over categories. If I say, oh, look at him, he barks like a dog. I just left a category, right? I called a guy a dog. And so I did a metamorphic jump that allows me to leap categories I falsified at the core. You realize that all of this is insanely dangerous. We've known this all along. We flew down on Garion's back. Dante swore on the book he was writing comedy that he really saw Garion, that he really flew down to the pits of fraud. Right there, we were told up front, fraud is going to be some giant meta-literary craziness in which Dante is going to get right up 
to the edge of making sense in falsifications. He's going to push the poetry almost as far as he possibly can in a medieval context. I mean, this is not Ezra Pound, but he's going to push it almost as far as you can in a medieval context until we reach here, in which we're being given the condensed stories, which barely makes sense unless you know Ovid really well and then used to describe other characters and become symbolism, and become part of the poetry and open out into the plot all in an extraordinarily poetic game of, well, fraud. Dante the fraud? No, I said the fraud. He's a great poet, but all great poets are frauds because they engage in fraudulent <laughs> behavior. Homer, Shakespeare, big fraudsters. We love them. They can't be better because they are playing dangerous games with reality and the truth. One more time, this incredibly complicated passage, the opening of Canto 30, lines 1 through 33. In that time of year when Juno's cruel fury at Semele was spent on the Theban bloodline, as she did over and over, Athamas became so totally insane that when he saw his wife walking around with their two children in her hands, he yelled, let's spread out the net so I can ensnare the lioness and her cubs at the crossroads. Then he stretched out his own unsparing claws, grabbed the one called Laercus, spun him around and smashed him against a rock at which his wife drowned herself with her other cargo. And as soon as fortune ran the dam the torpedoes heights of Troy into the ground so that the king and his kingdom were broken to bits, after sorrowing Hecuba in agony and a prisoner watched Polyxenadot and found Polydorus near the banks of the sea, she roamed about in torment, went completely mad and barked like a dog because all that sorrow had rattled her mind. Even so, Neither the crazed Thebans nor the Trojans had ever managed to seem so barbaric as to wound a beast, much less human parts. As two shades I saw who were pale and naked, they bit as they ran in the manner of pigs when the gate of the sty is left open. One of them got up to Copolchio and buried his tusks into the nape of his neck, then dragged him along so that his belly scraped against the hard floor of the ditch. And the guy from Arezzo, who was left there shivering in fear, said to me, that ghoul is Gianni Schicchi. He goes about all rabid to rough up others in this way. Well, that was a meta-literary podcast. If there was ever a meta-literary podcast, really tough stuff, really difficult, high-end poetics. If you have walked this far, you are great. You're getting your legs ready for <laughs> Purgatorio and Paradiso, where you're going to need really strong legs to get through it. But you're, you're working out here. You're starting to build it up to get ready for it. Please subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. I would really appreciate that. I'm glad you're on this journey with me. Thanks for being here and being even in the tough parts of Inferno like this passage. But you know what? Together, we can do it. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. I'll see you soon. <laughs>